So this morning we're going to do something just a little different um, and, and kind of take a little bit of a break in, in the middle of this series that we're in, in the Churches of Revelation. Um, how many of you have ever looked at time-lapse photography? Sunrise, sunset, any of those things? You know what it is? Okay. You, you've seen those. I, I saw this this week, and, and the first one that I'm going to show you is just life. And Tim's going to put it up right there. There you go. It had music, but it was funky. If you've ever been a gardener, don't you wish that it happened just like that? (laughs) You put the seed in and then boom, right? The second one is the final part of this stage and it's death. Just like the seed took a week or so, two weeks to, to show you its flourishing, the death took a little bit of time too, right? Didn't happen in a moment. And, and as I watch these fast forwarded, view, forwarded views of, of life and death, it, it kind of made me think of the, the churches that we've been talking about and their, their life cycle and, um, and Jesus speaking to them. Because for the past four weeks or so, we've been in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira last week, and and we've looked closely at these churches and what Jesus said to them, and we have seen the evidence of their spiritual decline. But from what we know about history, it, it was more than just decline. Because we don't know how many of the churches responded to Jesus and for how long they responded to his call. But we do know that by the end of the second century, middle of the third century, some say, the the strong witness of the gospel in this area that these churches were in and, and once thrived was all but extinct. If we if we were to do a time lapse of those years, right? The 50 maybe so or, or so years. We would, we would see, just like we saw just now, we would see the seed planted at, at Pentecost. We would see the, the sprouting taking place as, as Paul goes on his second missionary journey. And then we would see the weeding and the nurturing. And we would see the parts of Paul's second journey and his third journey. And then we would see the watering with the letters by Paul. And we would see the producing as the, the church grows and, and then even plants other expressions of the Lord's church. And then we would see neglect. And we would see false teachers, and we would see giving in to culture. And we would see the wilting of the church, and the moment that Jesus addresses that wilting that is going on. And then we would see the death. The gospel witness in each of those cities, all but lost. Where, where Jesus' words came to these churches was the wilting stage. It was after years of neglect or compromise 
and years before death. His words to them were very clear. They were being called to remember who they had been called to be. When the seed was planted of the church at Pentecost, right? They were, they were being called to adjust where they were headed as individuals and, and as a church together. They were called to overcome. They were called to hold fast and, and to thrive in the environment that they were in, depending on Jesus. So I think it helps us a little bit to stop in the middle of what we've been doing in talking about these churches and, and remember their starting point. The, the first expression of the church as we know it is in Acts, and, and it follows the death and resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that had been prophesied, and the proclaiming of the gospel, the good news that sin was defeated and mankind could be reconciled to God through the work of Jesus on the cross. I don't know that I can shrink it down any more than that. And initially, Peter preaches in Acts 2, and he takes his stand with the other 11, and he raises his voice and he declares, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you... And give heed to my words. And he spoke. He spoke about Jesus, the Nazarene, nailed to the cross, put to death. God raised him from the dead. God has made him both Lord and Christ. And then they asked, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. He kept going and he testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved. Souls were added to the kingdom of God. The church was birthed. The foundation for who they would be began to be formed. The, the church culture would define who they were. The church culture would define who would they would be and ultimately how they would live together because of how they were living individually. So the view of that culture comes in Acts 2. Those that had received his word were baptized and they were added about 3,000 souls and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and began even selling their possessions, their property they were sharing with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with, one, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And with the people that were watching all of this, what was going on rang true, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What God had done, what God had led them from and to, the culture he had created in them, with them, for them, was designed to live in such a way as to glorify God and, and the work of Christ in these individuals as they came together as a church. There, there would be spiritual impact for sure. Hearts would be changed. There would be physical impact. Deeds would be different. Words spoken would be different. And there would be eternal impact because they would be brought together in something that could not be separated by death. It was powerful. And, and nothing could stand against it because it had an enduring nature rooted and grounded in Jesus. 
It was, it was to be lived out, devotion to the truth of God's word, loving fellowship, encouraging one another in Jesus, finding unity at the foot of the cross, prayer, and, and recognizing the presence of God and, and speaking to him, living in a sense of awe of, of what God can do in the midst of people, and, and even experiencing that work, and living in unity, and living generously, and intentionally worshiping God, and, and doing things together pointing to God, who he is and what he's done. And what did God do with this church as these things were front and center? It says he expanded it. He expanded it. Because what was going on was the way he wanted it to be. So he expanded it. As you read the New Testament from Acts on, you, you find that each expression of the Lord's church in a different region, in a different people group or language, kind of had its own personality, and it also had its own needs. It had its own culture, if you will. Rome represented a community needing to shape their church culture around a strong understanding of the gospel's message, and that the sinfulness of humanity is only overcome by the power of God. And His grace working in a life miraculously and completely changes that life. Corinth represented a community needing to shape their church culture around avoiding the unending opportunities to engage in sinful behavior without any apparent consequences. To be accountable to one another, to, with maturity, settle problems in, in a way that honors God, avoiding division and quarreling, and, and to live modeling humble forgiveness with one another. Galatia represented a community needing to shape their church culture around sticking to the gospel and not falling away from it, needing to be a place that was not looking to do more of the demands of the law in order to be justified before the Lord, but needing to, in faith, look to Jesus to justify to live in an environment of freedom, knowing God's grace does not lead to sinful lifestyle, but it leads to the fruit of the Spirit being evidenced in the life, consumable within the community of faith. Ephesus represented a community needing to shape their church culture around the reality that God, by His grace, formed this community only through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And any life to be lived was to and could only be lived in Jesus. But that life would bring about maturity in Christ, would enable the followers of Jesus to walk in accordance with the calling they had been called to, which would cover all the things ethically, the way one thinks and believes, and morally, the way one carries out actions in the details of life. Philippi represented a community needing to shape their culture around having and maintaining joy. By, by centering all of life on Jesus, and that in, in such a community, the joy would actually overflow. And others would, would not see just temporary happiness. They would see something that circumstances couldn't take away. Philippi needed that unity and harmony that can only be maintained in an environment of humility and a desire to serve one another. They needed to model Jesus. 
Colossae represented a community needing to shape their church culture around being a Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused community, one that has a right view of who Jesus is, willingly walks in submission and obedience to him, and declares by their life that Jesus is the answer to what we believe, and it's evidenced by how we live. Thessalonica represented a community that was was shaping their church culture around faithfulness to the truth of Scripture, to the testimony of Jesus, and to what true salvation accomplishes, hope through Jesus, and perseverance in godly living. They they needed to be an ever-increasing, ever-intentional people that grow in Jesus and mature in faith. And, And that's motivated by the promise of a future, specifically the return of Christ. Their inspiration came in their consistency in walking in the power of God's Spirit, being sanctified, ever-changing to be more like Jesus, finding hope in the transformation that's possible in life, growing more and more in holiness, being separated from the world and its systems, right? And being devoted to Jesus. But all these churches began with the same understanding of who they were called to be. Foundationally, based on what took place in that very beginning of the church's culture in Acts. What transpired in them, who they were, who they were being called to be, how they would live in the world and with one another. It was God's plan for the church to be healthy, effective, so that he could continue to use that church and grow exponentially from there in the lives being saved. Did he have to have the church? I think God can do whatever he wants. But he did use the church. I I know we've looked at these before, but I want to look at them again because I do believe they're foundational. These are what the church must be known for to avoid its spiritual wilting and death. Worship. The complete surrender to Jesus, to the work of God's Holy Spirit, producing in every person every day, in every circumstance of life, the desire to declare and testify to the world around them with all that is in them what Jesus has done. Prayer. It's, it's taking things to God first and, and then staying in that continuing conversation with him and, and, and staying in that continuing conversation again, not till he agrees with us, but until we agree with him, no matter what the subject might be. Biblical truth. When the Spirit of God, who, whose presence indwells the follower, of Jesus, who gives them new life, who guides them to life and devotion to truth that's found in the teachings of Jesus and in the knowledge of God through what he has given us in his scriptures. Unity and communion. This is the togetherness in everyday life. 
taking meals together, breaking bread together, in incorporating, as Jesus did with his disciples, this unifying aspect of the cross. No matter how different you might be as a family and a family, or a person and a person, the unifying aspect of the cross, the death of Jesus and the forgiveness of sin, brings together in unity and communion those who are his. It's being seen and being known. It's seeing and knowing others for who they are and what they're all about, being established. It's a place of safety and security. It's a place that there's no fear and no anxiety in those relationships. It's, it's living in such closeness that everything comes into the light and everything is exposed because you know what's on the shelf and you know what's in the closet and you know what's in the mind and heart because it's spoken out. It's that thing that takes place. Togetherness is probably a really good word. Partnership is another one. It's the understanding that what we have in common in Jesus gives us opportunity to intentionally love and intentionally serve and intentionally walk in unity and intentionally encourage each other toward kingdom purposes in our relationships. Generosity, focusing not on just receiving, 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 but giving, 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 and, and looking for opportunity to model the generosity of God. To, to be this, the motivation comes from what we have freely received. And what we have freely received comes from God's infinite love. Infinite love. It comes from God's inexhaustible supply. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like my supply can sometimes be exhausted. That's not what we've received from him, though. We, we live to develop these generous hearts from our, our personal transformation. We maintain generous hearts through our selflessness, and, and we give from generous hearts to a place of true sacrifice. Why? Because that's who God is. Joy, experiencing God's presence through his salvation, both individually and together, recognizing that closeness and familiarity to Jesus is not the same as serving Jesus and knowing him as your Lord and your God. The motivation is the understanding that joy is able to be lived only in intimacy with Jesus. Otherwise, it's just circumstances and simple happiness. Awe and expectation. This is thinking rightly about God. Experiencing God in all that he is. Being inspired to learn and to grow and to live rightly before him. To worship and obey and hope in him alone. It's, it's motivated by a desire for God's glory to be displayed in such a way that it can only be answered in the divine. It's interesting how often God gets blamed or given credit for things that are so much less than who he is. 
the view into changed lives. Lives that don't look like the rest of the culture around them. Proclaiming the greatness of God, inspired by the awe of who he is. And then there's impact. This is being the people God entrusts with the privilege of walking out life and experiencing him with those that he saves. Being a people in a place where growth in the knowledge of God, the maturity of the character of Jesus can thrive, consistent and intentional, maintaining that health. Now, I know that's a little bit of a lengthy review, but I believe it's necessary for us as we're taking this brief pause because the reality is that at some point, each of these churches, these followers of Jesus, these people that were congregating in homes and, and different places and, and all of these things, right? In the first century, the reality is that they began to get their eyes off Jesus. They, they began to lose the awe of God. They began to neglect Jesus. They began to love Jesus less. They began to listen to error and false teaching. They began to give in and they began to follow the pursuits of the culture. They began to pursue their own passions and their own desires. When did this happen? When did it happen in, in the life cycle of this church? When did they stop talking to God? When did the apathy set in? When did they stop listening to God's truth? When did they give themselves permission to become something other than what God had called them to be? When did they no longer desire to acknowledge God's presence? When did they stop doing things God's way? When was he no longer enough? We don't know the answer to any of those questions, specifically in a moment of time in these churches in the first century. We can't point to one specific thing or one specific moment or whatever. We only know that they did all of those things in some way, shape, or form, personally and even corporately. And we do know the consequences. We know that there was a wilting just like the plant of their spiritual health. And ultimately, death 
of their spiritual effectiveness. You don't have to be a cultural anthropologist to recognize that there's always a battle for dominance in the thoughts and language and actions of a culture in order to control it. And and that doesn't matter whether it's the culture of a city, the culture of a state, the culture of a nation, the culture of a small group, the culture of a business, the culture of a family. There's, There's a lot at stake in this cultural battle that takes place because the culture we have been shapes the culture we are now and the culture we are now shapes the culture that we will be in the future. But in order for a culture to be significantly changed or to see dramatic shifts, it's normally not one event. I know when we look at culture, we look at it that way and we say, oh yeah, well, if this person wouldn't have been in leadership, then this wouldn't have happened. Or if this person hadn't been the governor or the president or the ruler, or I know we see that, but the environment was already set. The small steps had been taken, and, and it, it makes me want to ask, what was the first step in these churches toward worship being about something else other than the glory of God? When did it become about them and their feelings and their happiness? What was the first thing in these churches that hindered their communication with God in prayer? Was it that they didn't have time? Was it that they were distracted by too many children in the house? Or what What was it? What was it in these churches that caused knowing God through his word to be unimportant for life and its living? What was it that made their their togetherness, their unity, their fellowship, their eternal family less valuable? What was it that made them cease striving together for kingdom purposes and begin striving for temporary things? What was it that made them see God's infinite love and inexhaustible supply as something to be hoarded? Instead of shared. What were the circumstances that were so pressing, so needed attention, that they forfeited intimacy with Jesus and his true joy? What was more awe-inspiring for them than who Jesus is? And what he does. What gave their lives a greater sense of purpose, of of influence, of impact on others than walking alongside those with whom they would share eternity? Again, there's, there's not one moment we can point to for these churches, and there's not one single decision that is the cause. The only thing we do know is who they were called to be, people who would be known for loving Jesus, for living hope. 
they allowed to slowly wither away. The the saddest part of all this for me is to know that this has been repeated in history over and over and over in the Lord's church. And if allowed, it will be repeated over and over and over again until he returns. What begins with apathy and neglect ends with the loss of the witness of the gospel. And yet, the Lord's church will endure. Because Jesus is faithful to keep his promises. That that even the most overwhelming evil forces that could muster themselves together would not overcome his church. Would not vanquish his church. Would not bring it to an end. There would always be the ability for Jesus to bring it back to life. I want to show you one more time lapse just to seal that image. This is a plant that has been wilting and was given one cup of water. You can't see the clock there, but it's going by hours and hours. And For me, that was a pretty powerful image. Because what becomes clear is even when the Lord's church withers, for whatever the reason, Jesus desires for it to live. And and so he calls it to end its apathy. He calls it to end its neglect. He calls it to rid itself of all the things which so easily entangles it in this world. And he reshapes its culture to what it's meant to be so that it can be effective and it can thrive within his kingdom for his purposes and his work. This year, I believe the Lord has called us to to individually and together reaffirm our desire to be the church he's called us to be and to be about his kingdom's work while it is still day. We've been called to refocus on being in the word together. I have had some wonderful conversations over Genesis and Exodus so far. It has been inspiring it has been life-giving. So, so that, that we're reminded as we do this together in his word of his greatness, his glory, his plan. And we can inspire each other toward good deeds for his purposes. We, we've also been called to refocus on being in prayer together. So that we may acknowledge his presence with us. Hector was talking about this on Wednesday night. And, and he was talking about the fact that, that, that his presence is. 
the people that are born again of the Spirit of God, His presence is. Acknowledging it is the other side of the coin. We've been called to, to pray together and acknowledge his presence and to function in unity of the spirit, living in intimacy of relationship with him, ready to listen and to obey his voice. Ross mentioned the guided prayer that we've already got out there. And we're making a commitment to one of those being added every month. So this morning, it's available to you on the website. But we're releasing one for you to pray for the Lord's church. The things we just went over, the things that are taken from Acts chapter 2. You're going to find as you use it that it flows from what we talked about the Lord's desire for his church and what it is to be. Now, does it encompass everything? No, it's just a starting place. And do you have to limit yourself to only praying the guided prayer points that you're given? No, you don't. But I want us to pray together for him to do the work in the hearts of this group of people. And to not only do it in this group of people, because you are free to share that with anybody that's a friend of yours, anybody that you know is a believer to pray for the Lord's church. We're not copywriting it. We're not selling it. We're just putting it out there. Because there's a lot of different expressions, even in this city of the Lord's church. But we want to make sure that it's the Lord's church as he desires it to be. In his word, because it matters. It matters. So as we as we wrap up today, um, if you have any trouble getting it, you can do it pretty easy. You go to the website, you go to events, and it's right there under prayers of hope. You open it up. If you don't know how to put it on your phone, uh, we have we have some geniuses that. Uh, or yeah, yeah, there you go. See, we have geniuses. And you can do any of this stuff and get it. It is very easy to use. And even as Ross said this morning, you can do it on the way to work. 20, 40, 60-minute versions of it, depending on how much time you have. And there's an app coming soon that will have all of this on it. I say coming soon. We'll see. But it's coming. Let's put it, let's, it's coming. It's coming. That will make it even easier. Because we want, we, we want you to have no distractions. We want you to have no hiccups, no problems with growing your life in prayer. I'm not saying you're not praying. I'm not saying you don't know how or you don't pray well. This is about growing that. As I mentioned at the beginning, we, we don't know how many of the churches in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, responded to the message of Jesus. But we do know that at some point in time, the strong witness of the gospel in this area where the church once thrived in the midst of persecution and all of those things was all but extinct. Depending on the numbers now that you want to believe, probably one out of every thousand people 
in Turkey have a witness of the gospel in their own life that might call themselves followers of Jesus. That means one out of every thousand. So you could leave here today. You could go to Walmart. You could go to the grocery store. You could go to four different places. And you may never run into a person that follows Christ. And what we heard from our friends this morning at the beginning of our time together is that the Lord... The Lord's church endures because God is faithful. And He is saving souls. He is bringing people into His kingdom. And He is building His church. And I will tell you that much of what's going on there is happening because of the foundation of prayer. It's happening because of the foundation of the Word of God being proclaimed And by that prayer and that proclamation of the word, God is joining by his spirit in those endeavors and bringing people into his kingdom to be a part of his church. And I believe that we're being called in the same way to reaffirm, to maintain the Lord's church in the way he desires it to be. For his glory. So I'm going to ask you. Grab the the new prayer guide. And let's begin to pray for the church. Because if you don't know, we're living in a culture that is no longer primarily shaped by Christ and Christianity. Right? We're living in a pagan culture. We need to pray for the Lord's church. Let's stand together as we close out our time. And yes, we will get back to the seven churches next week. Lord, thank you for our time today. Thank you for the richness of it, Lord. All the different components that we bring together as we come. Even something as simple as having a cup of coffee together and sharing conversation. There is a richness in that, Lord, because we're not sharing conversation to a temporary end. The conversations that we have are eternal because we will be with your family, your children forever. So there's a richness there, Lord. There is a, there's a joy there. There is an overwhelming nature of you being present and us acknowledging that individually and together. So Lord, as we go from this place, would you, would you walk with us in such a way that we would live out the gospel's message in our deeds, but we would also look for opportunity to share the gospel's message with those who are lost And Lord, would you remind us that your church is enduring and that we get to be a part of what you want to do in this community with our family, our friends. Lord, the the people with whom we work, Lord, let us be awestruck by who you are and what you do. 
Let us be inspired, Lord, by by you ever present in our lives, Lord. And would you continue to shape this culture at Hope Chapel, Lord, that it would look and sound like you desire it to be as you started it in the very beginning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.